Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will Barber-Taylor, and this is the first part of our two-part discussion of Keir Starmer's first year as leader of the Labour Party. In this episode, myself and the panel will be discussing the leadership election which brought Keir Starmer to power, Keir Starmer's personality, his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, how he's handled PMQs against Boris Johnson and his shadow cabinet. I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you look forward to listening to the second part of this discussion which will be out very soon. Dude, we are going to energise the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, uh, I'm delighted by an array of guests to discuss the first year of Keir Starmer as leader of the Labour Party. Uh, It's been a very eventful year, and I think that with the uh, panel that I've assembled for this podcast it's a year that uh, we'll be able to review and analyse in uh, greater depth and figure out what went right and what went wrong. So joining me, I'd like to uh, reintroduce back to the podcast, Lauren Davison, uh, Secretary of the Young Fabians Criminal Justice Network, Justice Reform Co-Chair for Open Labour, uh, Young Labour uh, Potteries Membership Officer, uh, the uh, Young Fabians Disability Advocacy Group's Information Officer, and the Centre Think Tank's Justice Spokesperson. Welcome back to the podcast, Lauren. Thank you for having me. Sorry, there were so many positions. It took me about <laughs> six years to reel them off. Sorry. It's not a problem. We've all got uh, quite a, uh, an array of positions, so <laughs> it's going to take me a little bit longer to <laughs> introduce everyone. Um, also uh, joined by Armand Tesfai, who is the co-chair for uh, Queen Mary's University uh, Labour Society, uh, he's also the uh, BAME rep for Open Labour, and he's running to be the Young Labour BME officer in the current Young Labour elections. Welcome to the podcast, Armin. Oh, what's up? It's uh, great to be here. Really excited. It's great, it's great to have you here. I think it's going to be an excellent discussion. We're also joined by George Fairhurst, chair of the Yorkshire and Humber Young Fabians, Membership Officer of West Yorkshire's Open Labour and Editor and Presenter of Red Rose Reporting. Welcome back to the podcast, George. Thank you for having me and thank you for spilling off my Game of Thrones style title so um, eloquently. <laughs> thank you. I think they are uh, definitely given um, uh, the Yorkshire location. It is quite a uh, Game of Thrones, isn't it? I, th- I think oh, we've indeed. discussed that before. <laughs> Very Tolkien-esque. And finally, last but certainly not least, I'm delighted uh, to also welcome to the panel Amy Dwyer, Chair of the Young Fabians uh, Education Network and the University of Manchester Young Fabians Group, Policy Officer for the Young Fabians International Network and Co-Secretary of Labour Doorstep. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Hi, thank you for having me. Obviously, I'm going to be representing the Lancashire viewpoint here. I'm going to be George's enemy during this podcast. <laughs> you, every single time we have any interaction, you immediately bring it up. Like it's the myth that Yorkshireman's <laughs> only brings up these from Yorkshire. It's these Lancastrians, I swear. <laughs> well, hopefully, uh, there isn't too much uh, War of the Rosen going on uh, in this particular podcast. To begin. I'd like to go back to just before uh, Keir Starmer became leader of the Labour Party and look back on the Labour leadership election. 
It came as the result of the 2019 uh, general election, which was devastating for the Labour Party and, of course, uh, resulted in Jeremy Corbyn uh, resigning as leader of the Labour Party. Thinking back on the contest, what are our general thoughts as to um, the contest now a year on and whether the result was the uh, correct one? A year on, I'd like to start with uh, you, Lauren. What are your thoughts on this particular subject? I mean, I'm never going to say the result was the correct one because it should have been Nandy. I'm not bitter. I am massively bitter. (laughs) I I wish it was Nandy. It should have been. I think most people in here probably would have agreed with that. I'm not sure who everyone voted for, but I feel like there's a strong Nandy contingent within this um, Zoom. Um, I found the entire leadership election really uncomfortable and really hostile. Um, I, I think that was partly because emotions were very high after the last election. Everyone was really upset. It was very raw. Um, obviously, didn't vote for Starmer. Um, I, I kind of had a feeling Nandy wouldn't win, but I respected a lot of the sort of slightly uncomfortable truths that she was telling, um, and I felt drawn to her on that basis. I also felt maybe she wouldn't represent such an aggressive change intact that Starmer was because he was very much, you know, pigeonholed as the right wing candidate, um, backed by a lot of the more further right factions. Um, And I liked a lot of what Nandy had to say on things like localism and towns and functioning bus networks. Uh, So that's, you know, that's what I wanted. I'm going to say that I'm glad Long Bailey didn't win. Um, Although... I don't really think it would have mattered who had won because I think the factors we're up against at the minute, whoever had won would be doing broadly the same in the polls. Uh, Armand, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that looking back on the leadership election that the result uh, was the right one? What are your thoughts? Well, whether or not it's the right one is the majority one. Starmer won and Starmer won by a long one. And I kind of agree with Lauren here. Um, I mean, she she hit the right tone. Uh, One thing I would add is I felt like this leadership um, election was a huge missed opportunity. It should have been seen not as a crowning moment, and I felt like sometimes it was for Keir Starmer and to a lesser extent Angela Rayner. It was like a crowning moment. It wasn't a chance, like a job interview. We should have treated it as such. And I think in certain areas we let, I think this party and and the movement let Starmer off the hook on, on many things, and we should have drawn back to a lot of the things he said and a lot of things he's done. Um, you know, he did run on this thing as a human rights lawyer. And I think one big regret that I had, and I think a lot of people would have, was we should have looked more closely at his record as, as DPP um, uh, on that, um, which, you know, it was a bit hit and miss in, in certain things. And um, I think for, 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 for many things, it was a missed opportunity. Um, I was, yeah, I think it, it was also a little bit on that side of toxicity. I really like what Lisa Nandy did. I think she ran a pretty well-run campaign. Unfortunately, she didn't win. Um, but yeah, that's what I, I felt. I felt like rather than a big moment where we have a look at ourselves and what needed to be done to go forward, mm-hmm. we went back to our little comfort yeah, we went back to our close comforts. And uh, and that's why Keir Starmer won. He's not someone new. He is something like a close comfort for many people. Um, so, yeah, that's what I thought. Mm. Uh, I mean, Amy, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think, uh, do you agree with uh, Armand's assessment? What are your thoughts on the, the leadership contest, looking back a year on? 
Yeah, I agree. And I agree with Lauren as well. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't vote. I literally joined the day after the deadline. So that was really rude. I kind of just watched the debates really salty at the time. Um, but still kind of recognised that I thought that Nandi kind of best represented the direction that I saw that Labour should be going in. Um, I, I share the same thing with Lauren. I'm glad that Long Bailey didn't win. I think she represented too much of the same Um and with Armand, that it was much more of like a, a reassertion of Starmer than a discussion of where we wanted to go. And, you know, are we really going to find the best person by, you know, going back to like factions? Also, like, it was so disappointing that we didn't see the first female leader. How are we, how has this still not happened yet? <laughs> George, what are your thoughts on this? Do you agree with the, um, rest of the panel in their assessment of the leadership election. Oh, I'm glad you've saved me for last because everyone else managed to put it quite more succinct than I would have done. Um, my abiding memory of the leadership election was, I don't remember being quite so energised yet quite so depressed at the same time because um, after the election, when this whole thing kicked off, I was early days big on Lisa Nandy and I kind of spent the whole leadership election being really big on Lisa Nandy, but equally I couldn't escape this kind of sinking feeling that perhaps we wouldn't win. And then I looked at the other camps that were going off and we had things like the Leeds hustings where Richard Bergen and Dalton Butler had that embarrassing discussion on who was the bigger backer of Jeremy Corbyn throughout the whole of his leadership. And the writing was kind of on the wall that regardless of who won, um, this kind of brief pause in factional hostilities we had from the election period and kind of afterward was just going to end. I respect that Keir Starmer won, even though I only gave him my second preference, and that was purely just so I felt I'd used it. Um, I am glad that Rebecca Long-Bailey didn't win, um, mostly because I measured um, my own kind of assessment of the leadership candidates off of how my family reacted when they came on the television, and every single time, my granddad and my mum, who, uh, let's characterise them as Red Wall voters, shall we? <laughs> they they were none so keen. So I kind of looked at them in the way that those, uh, I don't even remember, and there was, I think, YouGov polls which showed how each of the leaders were being um, shown in the various regions, and especially up north where we took losses. Rebecca Long-Bailey's polling numbers were just uh, diabolical. So um, uh, at the end of it, I was a little bit glad that she didn't win, but equally if Keir Starmer wasn't too sure, and that's kind of how I felt nearly a year on, as we'll get into. One of the interesting things I think that I can gather, and I think the listeners probably gather, from each of your responses, is a feeling that the leadership election wasn't really the same kind of um, debate or conversation that uh, you feel that the, uh, the Labour Party needed at this particular moment, the kind of uh, reanalysis of it. Was it because that the leadership election happened too quickly after the general election, or do you think it was because of the particular candidates that got on the ballot? Armin, if you could start. Uh, too quickly? Uh, well, uh, in my view, it was way too long. Um, one thing about Labour internal elections, and this is from my, from my personal experience to the leadership elections, internal elections are way too long. Um, and... And the more longer you draw out, it gives the demons in our in our party and in the demons in us to to be more uh, rude and ruthless. Um, and uh, yeah, and I and I and I felt that yeah, I, I think like once again, and I felt like this leadership election was too easy for Keir Starmer. I think 
there was like an I think there was I think that that is a good point that 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 it was happened right after the leadership mm. election. We were like so desperate for for to us to return to the home comforts instead of learning and, and trying to try something different. And I think the, the length of that leadership election played into that. An alternative you looked was the Scottish Labour elections. And I felt that as a Londoner, uh, someone from the dirty South looking at looking at uh, Scotland, I felt like it was a lot more respectable, uh, a lot more different in a way, uh, and I, like two different views of, for example, Scottish independence. But at the end of the day, they, they were respectful and both had interesting things. I, I particularly enjoyed, uh, we'll get into it later, but I particularly enjoyed Monica Lennon's a policy on drug reform. And, and I felt that something like that was interesting enough. Uh, George, what are your thoughts? Do you agree with that assessment in terms of the, the length of it? Or do you think it was the, the proximity to the general election result that was the issue with the, uh, the leadership election, that it seemed to be a crowning for Keir Starmer rather than a proper internal party debate? I, I think that Ireland's got it in one there. Um, if you look historically, what happens is like after an election defeat, the longer that a leader who everyone knows is not going to fight the next general election stays on, the worse it gets. Case in point, Jim Callaghan, who stayed on to try and hold the party together, but all he did was just deepen the divides between the camp that Healy was in and the camp that Michael Foote was in. Um, I, when it comes to Labour Party internal um, elections i've covered one of my own podcast series and i've worked in one because i worked inside the hugh goldborn campaign for west yorkshire mayor and what was striking about it was that kind of what i suspected would happen at the start happened at the end and then we had a very long period where things could have happened and didn't my own view is that um as much as we like the whole drama and suspense of these elections we like the narratives that these small-time candidates could come out and win it just doesn't happen it, it tends to be the case that people who at the start look like they're in with a chance to either come first or second, come first or second. It's not the American primaries, it's UK politics. It's sadly more dull and predictable. Um, in, in terms of the culture, though, I think that... I don't think the length of time had anything to do with it. I just think that Labour culture for internal elections is horribly divisive and it really does lean into this whole side of going after people's personalities and these like expose flash-in-the-pan moments where we find something that someone's done wrong and we harp onto it and do personal attacks. You can see it happen rightfully or wrongfully right now with our candidate in Hartlepool over his views with Saudi Arabia and his tweets from the past, which I'm not, I'm not going to go into now, but um, that, that's just very briefly my view. Hmm. Amy, what are your thoughts on this? Um, so I, I kind of agree with like what's already been said. I think um, like no matter how long they waited after the general election, tensions and emotions would be incredibly high no matter what so I don't think that would have altered it too much um I think that as George just said like labor internal elections are so toxic and damaging to everyone involved we need so much more reform over it um but I, I do think that it definitely did feel like a crown in for Starmer rather than you know a proper examination of where we go from here Lauren, do, do you agree with the general consensus of the rest of the panel do you think that perhaps maybe this isn't something that's necessarily been picked on, uh, picked up on? If there had been somebody else uh, standing, that the discussion may have been different, or do you think it would have always uh, been a, a crowning for Keir Starmer? 
I have to say, um, and this is not just because I wouldn't have voted for her. I don't think there's anyone from that faction that I probably would have voted for if they were so close to Corbyn. I don't think Long Bailey was the right candidate for the left in that election. Um, I think maybe, because at one point there was talk of a Long Bailey Rayner ticket, wasn't there? Mm. Um, I think maybe Angela Rayner might have been the better choice um, in that election, although maybe she's not quite as left as Long Bailey, but I feel that I feel that she might have had a bit of more of a broad appeal that might have, um, you know, done a little better. But I also think coming into this leadership election, there was a backdrop of factional drama anyway, because people still blame centrists for the chicken coup and not backing Corbyn enough. And then the moderates were furious at two elections being lost, which they put down to Corbyn and the left alone. And then obviously the leaked report happened after and it made things worse. Um, so it wasn't just like a normal election. Tensions were so high already. It just spilled over, I think. I'd now like to move on uh, to the performance of Keir Starmer in Prime Minister's questions, because... PMQs, whether you enjoy them or not, are often seen as a barometer for how uh, the leader of the opposition performs. So on that point, George, how do you think Keir Starmer has done in Prime Minister's questions against Boris Johnson? Okay, so Prime Minister's question time for the last year has been interesting because it's an institution which has been losing its art form for the last 20 years. The people who are going into it don't perform this the way they used to do. So PMQs on paper is leader of the opposition goes and asks the Prime Minister uncomfortable questions, the Prime Minister give answers, job done. What it is mostly now is Prime Minister will be asked a question which will be used to put on social media platforms later to show that the leader of the opposition is engaged in a certain issue, whilst the Prime Minister gives a blistering attack which manages to destroy the character of the leader of the opposition post on social media for later on. So as much as, you know, they, they still are in the room, they're not particularly listening to the answers they get or receive unless they specifically are going after a very uncomfortable thing, which is kind of then when we get into Keir's style. Um, Johnson is a difficult person to pin down because if you try and ask him even just the time of day, he'll somehow spin that as you not being patriotic and, you know, talking down Britain and all this rubbish um, kind of, you know, um, pound store Trump style politics. Corbyn's previous, um, you know, the previous leader of the opposition, he was quite a scattergunned in his approach because he would ask a really good introduction question on a certain topic like buses, but then just pivot and go completely the other way. When he did focus on a topic, he was actually quite good at it, um, especially against Theresa May, who never really warmed to the whole Prime Minister's question time. But when it comes to Starmer, he's less scattergunned and he, you know, he got this title as forensic, um, which I'm glad has since uh, bitten the dust. Here, when he does have the right information, such as when um, the scientific information on like the lockdowns, which is, you know, if you remember in October, he basically asked the government why they're ignoring sage advice, and then that led to a complete route, which ended up with the government U-turning. He can be quite effective. But the, the issue is that the issues we've been trying to debate over the last year have been mostly stuff where the government has had information that the leader opposition has, so hasn't had. So asking questions on it is basically just like asking to be pummeled and then have it broadcast to the nation. Mm. So I, I think Prime Minister's question times with Keir have started to come on a little bit. I think he's not a terrible performer. He's good when he actually knows he's got a specific line of attack he wants to go on. But I think as an overall basis, I don't think he's the best performer of it they'll ever be. Although that's no barometer for being an effective prime minister because William Hague was fantastic at prime minister's questions time because he would like 
lay down traps by getting Tony Blair to promise that something would never happen. And then inevitably when it did happen, he had him. William Hague was not prime minister. He was a historic loser. So, so this, whilst it is a good thing to check in on, I don't think it's a barometer of whether Keir Starmer will win in 2024 or not. Mm. Amy, what are your thoughts on how Keir Starmer has performed in Prime Minister's Question Time? So I think on the whole, he has, he, he's done well. Like what George said, uh, when he has the right information, he is good. He asks kind of the right questions. And, you know, Boris does come across as completely incompetent, but... I'd say the main problem is that ordinary voters who aren't politics nerds, like we all are, um, they don't see this. So, you know, and that's the problem. It, the general view is that PMQs are embarrassing. You know, you don't get any actual accountability because Johnson hasn't answered a question in months and he's not going to anytime soon. You know, if, if we're not reaching ordinary voters when we actually are doing a good job of holding the government to account, it's almost like, what was the point? You know, like I was talking to my parents about like the policing bill, for example, and they genuinely had no idea about any of the problems with it. So like, if we aren't reaching swing voters on huge issues like this, well then it doesn't matter what our performance is like in PMQ, we're just not reaching the voters that we need to be reaching. Mm. Armin, what are your thoughts? <sighs> um, it's... I mean, to be honest, I, I, I'm not a religious tuner of PMQs. If I if if it's around the time and I'm free, I'll go in and watch it. Um, uh, I generally, it would be interesting because, of course, there's also the thing that Keir, Keir Starmer hasn't had a PMQs under non-COVID restrictions, and that might have blunted the, the, the bit a little bit. But, yeah, I, I kind of agree with what George said about been a little bit more concentrated on certain things. Um, and honestly, if I have to say a thing, it's fine. But that also, like, mm. I, I, it's not remarkable. It's not spectacular. But sometimes, you know, um, and we're going to, uh, I think later on in, in the show, you'll probably be talking about, like, his opposition style. But there's, there's, there's this thing that, that, you know, when 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 people will be like, why can't you just go in? People will defend Keir Starmer basically saying, oh, he needs to be, you know, proper opposition. He needs to be constructive oppositional and, and stuff like that. And that comes in PMQs. I remember, like, I, I might not be the biggest fan of him, but Tony Blair was bloody ruthless when it came to PMQs. Mm. It was honestly brutal um, uh, when it comes to parliamentary performances. And so... I think, you know, there comes a point where he sometimes just has to be a little bit more, I think, direct and basically saying you're doing something very, very stupid or, or something along those lines. But uh, I think if I have to talk about Keir Starmer and, and his PMQs, even though I don't watch it a lot, it's fine. It's not great. It is not abysmal. It is just fine. Lauren, what do you think about how uh, Starmer performs at PMQs? I mean, do you agree that uh, I, the, the general sense I get from um, the different people who have spoken is that it's not an awful performance, but it's not one that is necessarily going to be remembered for a long time to come? Yeah, I'd say it's probably mediocre at best. Um, to be perfectly blunt with you, I've stopped watching it. Um, I used to watch it sort of every week. From what I've seen of Keir, he has, you know, he's gone at Johnson, not 
massively vocally, but he's said what he's needed to say. Mm. Um, I, I think he's he's bested Johnson every time I've seen him. It's not, you know, but although that's not really hard to do because he just sort of chunters and talks in Latin and just just <laughs> typical posh boy. Um, I think Starmer has grown into it a bit. At first he was quite wooden. He still is wooden, but less so. Um, and, you know, when like everyone else has said, when he's got the information in front of him, he's quite good at, I think his lawyer comes into play and he's quite good at, you know, um, attacking with it. But I just want to speak a bit more widely, very quickly about the concept of PMQs as a whole, because I don't see the point when Johnson doesn't even answer questions. Um, PMQs really irritates me because it's really pompous and it's like a whole spectacle of it. Um, and all the jeering and Johnson playing to the bootlickers on his backbench, um, it, it makes me feel a bit sick. It just It's one of those things that I find really antiquated. It really puts me off of politics. So I think there are a lot of people probably who aren't massively involved in politics that feel the same and just don't see the point of it. It's just... Mm. Yeah, it's, it just feels a bit like a game and it's not it's not maybe the best um, advert of British politics that we should be sending out to people. It's interesting on this point, I think um, Lauren touched upon it then, George did as well. The, the view of PMQs certainly um, is not necessarily the most positive one. In some ways, it may be seen as just a, a means of creating social media content, or as, as Lauren said there, for a lot of people might just be seen as completely antiquated and put them off politics. Therefore, is it important to focus on PMQ performances, or should we be focusing on something else? Amy, what are your thoughts? I mean, I kind of touched on this a little bit in like the, the last question. I don't... I mean, obviously, we we want a leader who can perform well in PMQs and hold you know hold the the prime ministers to account. And I, I think that is something that's important. Um, but you know, if if we're not reaching ordinary voters and we're only reaching the people that are already heavily engaged in politics, and even sometimes not them because of how rehearsed it is, you know how you know we don't get any real accountability. Then I think there's not really much point. Because, you know, they're already engaged. We need to be reaching the swing voters, the people that we've lost at previous elections. And Prime Minister's questions isn't the way to do that at all. Mm. Lauren, I think I can gather what your response will be. But do you think that it is something we shouldn't really be focusing too much on? Yeah, pretty much. I think there's far more important stuff um, he could be doing, coming out with policy, um, other media appearances that are less predicated on sitting in the House of Commons gobbing off at each other and waving papers. I think maybe there are more constructive things like going on the radio, other forms of media. Um, I, yeah, I think probably it is over-focused on. Mm. Armin, do you think that it is over-focused on and we should be uh, focusing more on getting the leader of the Labour Party or viewing the leader of the Labour Party's performances in other uh, media settings? Uh, yes, I think, um, in terms of other, I think we have to diversify how we see, uh, the leader of the opposition. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. Um, but even then sometimes kids, I'm not the greatest when it comes to media. Mm. Um, uh, when it comes to media performances, he is learning, he is improving and, you know, that will have to be you will have to continue and you probably have to do it very quickly, especially if, if 
the upcoming elections won't be won't be uh, will be a disappointing one, um, and the polls won't look in his favour. So, I think I'm in a mixture between the two. I I I do like a good PMQs, uh, mm. but but then again, I completely understand why people don't like him. People, you know, think it's pretty much useless. Um, um, I I I think Keir Starmer is a little bit better when when he has a lot more time and respond. For example, responding to any, every time the prime minister makes a statement, he's a little bit better um, because that gives him a lot more time to set the scene and 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 have his narrative try to push his narrative, whatever that may be. So yes, uh, in a way, uh, it has to be. A little bit expanded but mm-hmm. then again you know pmqs is popular for a reason because it's short uh and it's accessible uh in that way um but yeah that that's 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 the thing with, with politics and that's the thing with oppositional politics you have to take every opportunity you can get mm. george what are your thoughts on this well i've been listening quite carefully to what everyone else has said because i'm afraid i'm going to be the contrarian here um so I'm in two minds about whether PMQs need to be focused less or we need to focus more on getting Keir doing other things. Like, I, I understand the critiques of the fact that Keir's not especially brilliant at Prime Minister's question time and like don't, I'm not, I'm not going to try and defend his style because it is quite courtroom. Hmm. But then the alternative is if you're not going to focus on Prime Minister's question time, you need to focus on something where he's genuinely good and genuinely excel. And I spent the last few questions listening, well, listening to their answers and um, I couldn't think of anything. I genuinely don't think there's much that Keir Starmer, if you put him in a room and told him, right, do something which will make you stand out from other politicians, he's not going to do anything that's like mind-blowingly awesome. He's not, he doesn't strike me too much as like a rally kind of politician and we can't do those anyway. And those statements he does after the Prime Minister speaks are decent, but they, they even then they still come across as a bit awkward and stilted. So Prime Minister's question time, while it's, it's not brilliant because I can guarantee you what happened tomorrow. Uh, Keir Starmer will ask a question. Let's take, for example, the fact the government broke its own manifesto promise on reducing the army size. Keir will say, why have you done that? And Boris will go, well, we're doing this to make the army better. Why are you talking down the army? You were terrorist supporting them and then they cause a load of controversy. Nothing gets done. But by having it so that Keir at least engages with the other side and, and can show, look, I've tried asking him about why they're doing these things. They don't want to know. It does give Keir a little bit of like credit to the public that he's trying to do something. I just think the way that it's marketed and the way that it's carried out, especially with our current Conservative opponent, is particularly dreadful. Mm. We're going to take a quick break now to listen to a trailer for the Politics of Sound podcast episode with Daria Gabriel. When we return, we'll be discussing Keir Starmer's personality, his handling of COVID-19 and his shadow cabinet. We'll be back very shortly. April is just around the corner, and that means the new edition of the Politics of Sound podcast. That's the show on which politicians and other political figures reveal their all-time three favourite albums. My visitor to the record shop this month is Dahlia Gabriel, an author and political commentator who, along with her colleagues from Navarra Media, is rapidly becoming established as one of the most original voices in the new wave of writers and thinkers on the left. Now I look back, I don't understand how I did this, but I was like a bull in a china shop, like I was having none of it. So that's the Politics of Sound podcast, out on the 1st of April on Global Player or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, 
I'd now like to move on to uh, the way that Keir Starmer has handled the coronavirus pandemic, because, of course, that has uh, engulfed all of politics. As um, I think it was George mentioned, uh, Keir Starmer hasn't had a uh, Prime Minister's questions outside of uh, COVID restrictions uh, yet. Uh, so thinking of how he has handled it and how he's responded to the way that the government have uh, handled both the pandemic rollout and all the things associated with it. Armin, what, what do you think have been the positives or negatives of the way that Keir Starmer has handled the pandemic? Well, um, there are hundreds how many deaths there are? Uh, <laughs> I think 120,000 deaths, mm. one of the worst in terms of per, per capita, per population, mm. one of the worst economic crises in, in, in Europe. Uh, it, the statistics today that, you know, the, the amount of people our age, you know, uh, sort of in that 18 to 25 who have lost a job or uh, don't have income due to it. Um, why does it not feel like that? And I think the very first mistake that Keir Starmer did was on that speech when he says not opposition for opposition's sake, which which indicated a sort of offer to be constructive. There is a time to be constructive and sure, it's a crisis. We have to make sure we have to cheer on the government to do better. But, you know, that, but the government is doing appalling, absolutely appalling. And the vaccine, um, and now, you know, the vaccine drive is going well and, it's not because of the government, it's because this has been handled by the NHS and the NHS internally. Almost every time the government tried to do this big thing, for example, track and trace and Serco, I think one thing they did really well, and I do give credit for, was when they finally got to Tory cronyism and basically saying everything but that this is corruption, when they're talking about the close allies of the prime minister, or the close allies of the government who's been given. Uh, and I think that's, a really, that's been a really good thing. But I mean, we out of all of the first world countries, we have one of the worst responses to COVID. I mean, I think only the United States is worse in, in terms of, of of how we responded to that problem. Why does it not? Why is the Tory still gaining in the polls? And why is the Tory still 50? It's because of the vaccine bounds, which is always going to happen. But Honestly, you know, Labour should have built up some sort of bank of, of, of positive support. And I say a lot of people will try and compare this to, for instance, and try to be very, very cursed, compare this with World War II, when, when Clement Attlee joined with Churchill in a wartime government. People, what people don't mention is that Clement Attlee threatened to bring down the government during, a, during the war. He brought down Neville Chamberlain's government. The reason was because he handled the war terribly. I'm, I'm sorry to bring in that. I don't like bringing in the World War II because because I'm not a boomer. But 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 that's 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 the thing, you know. Kids, I'm shouldn't be afraid to just saying you're crap. You handle this like crap, and thousands of people are dead because of it. And that and you know there are clear indications that that happened. The prime minister clearly didn't care until there were so many people dying, and he tried to move it on until he couldn't. And I think that's, that's the problem. And so, yeah, that's what I, what I think about it. And what are your thoughts? How do you think Keir Starmer has handled the coronavirus pandemic? Um, you know, I agree with Armin. I, it, I think him saying his little constructive opposition 
uh, bit at the start. I think it was very much like Theresa May's red line speech, which basically painted her into a corner um, from the off. And it became a bit of a stick to beat her with. I feel the same is happening now because anytime he does uh, dissent from that, he gets told, well, I thought you were being constructive with us. Um, so it's very much the same thing. And also speaking about kind of all the job losses that Armin also mentioned, you know, 88% of job losses for, from young people, we've got a huge challenge ahead of us. And if we harness the resentments and the anger that are, are likely to be there now from younger people, we have a much better chance of unseating Tories. But Starmer will need to be ruthless and quite frankly, grow a pair. But he's not going to, I can't see it happening. Um on COVID, I, I think he's obviously made mistakes and it has been a baptism of fire for him, I think. But on that front, for him to say that Matt Hancock shouldn't resign when he's overseen a pandemic response with over 120,000 people losing their lives, accusations of corruption when it comes to contracts being given to close friends and donors. Um, for him to say the public don't want Matt Hancock to resign, yes, we bloody do. The public love a resignation. Like, that's the obvious one. He's so unpopular. Um, you know, I, I just don't understand the logic of it. I think the constructive opposition part, I do get to a point. There is obviously a need for public confidence and for the public to adhere to lockdown rules and public health measures. But there is a point where that becomes, you know, you're actually almost complicit in what you're doing. I'd like to see him be a lot more proactive, I think, rather than just reactive. Um, and I don't think he's been clear on his position, for example, with like schools and teaching unions, saying that schools are safe and then changing his mind. So what are your thoughts? How do you think Keir Starmer has handled the coronavirus pandemic? Coronavirus, um, I mean, I'll just say from the off, it would have been really difficult for any leader to handle it. And this is not where I excuse Keir Starmer, it's just to acknowledge that. Because... Um, this time last year in March, overnight, everybody became Mackenzie all of a sudden, or at least they got out their thesauruses and they figured out how to amend a speech just to sound like one. Because suddenly you, you had like the most right-wing government we've had since Thatcher deciding that they were going to pay everyone in the country's um, wages through furlough. You decide, there was all these curbs. The government got really involved in the economy. And that's Labour policy. And then there was this whole thing throughout most of early 2020 where the Tories really started parking their tanks on our lawn, like in terms of left-wing economics, or at least using the language to make it seem like that. So when Keir Starmer became leader of the opposition, he was facing this while the government was essentially having, you know, the rally around the flag mentality. They were surging the polls. So he decided to do constructive opposition. Now, that basically means you just vote for the government, uh, but you have a little critique of it at the side. And as the rest of the panel has pointed out, that's rubbish. <laughs> it, it doesn't do anything because at the end of the day, you're, you're basically saying, oh, this isn't very good, but endorsing it by voting for it or at least not making a proper, you know, um, opposition towards it. I mean, part of Keir's strategy has been to kind of um, call for actions and stuff, but then never build on it. Like take um, Rosina Alan Khan, for instance, one of my favourite front benches. She rightfully called for immediate action for key work and mental health back in September. That's the last we heard of that. Didn't get built on at all. So I, I think that the opportunity of having constructive criticism and constructive opposition would have been literally to start building up a policy platform by saying, look, this is where you've gone wrong. This is what we would have done. And then keep on bringing it up again and again and again to kind of force changes on the matter. Because that, that's the whole point of the opposition is. Um, the lack of um, using, you know, Keir's um, policy platform, well, sorry, his public platform to uh, call for resignations. 
I kind of agree with him a little bit on it because at the end of the day, it's an 80-seat majority government and Keir Starmer is someone who the country has barely just gotten to know. Mm. Him calling for the, for instance, Matt Hancock to resign is going to achieve FA, um, to be blunt. Um, I think that, you know, Keir's high points in this was definitely when he got the um, minutes from the um, stage meeting and he called for the circuit breaker lockdown. And that was good. That was good handling of the coronavirus because he was literally following the science. And when he did things like that, like he seemed to have a cohesive thing where he didn't contradict himself, he did very well. But then he just can't help himself with stuff like the teachers unions and the schools because he doesn't want to be seen as, you know, the proponent of perpetual lockdowns. And uh, to kind of conclude this little ramble down, I personally think what that's the result of is poll chasing rather than having any genuine held beliefs on this. Because admittedly, COVID-19 is a really difficult thing to maintain a set of beliefs on without coming across in a certain manner. Take Steve Baker, he comes along as a right-wing wazak. Um, so that's kind of my um, take on it. Mm. Amy, what are your thoughts? How do you think Keir Starmer has handled the, the pandemic? Um, so I, I think it's important to, you know, obviously remember that it has been, like Lauren said, like a baptism of fire, you know, um, it, it's not just been, obviously it has been hard for the government and they've dealt with it awfully, but it has also kind of been hard for the opposition to kind of come into their new roles in the middle of this chaos. Um, I think they've they've kind of put themselves, at, I, I'd say, the wrong side of this dilemma between holding the government to account but kind of being afraid of being seen as point scoring and mm -hmm. you know it, it's not point scoring to hold the government to account for you know having like the worst one of the worst death rates in the world that's not point scoring that's that's just holding them to account um I think it is difficult as well because I've heard the excuse a lot that people just want to get out of this crisis and yeah they obviously do everyone does but that doesn't mean that we should support everything the government does to attempt to get us out of it and then hold them to account later because we all know that I mean the government has messed up so many times and it's so important that we don't let people forget about it because otherwise they're going to go into the polls and the Tories are going to win again if we let them forget everything that they've you know everything that they've done everything they've done wrong or the corruption then they're going to get away with it so it's up to us to kind of hold them to account and make sure that doesn't happen so I think I mean we have at times you know held them to account but I think you know like George said like the circuit breaker lockdown that was you know he, he did handle that well but I think it's scary that we've got to the point where we've just kind of accepted that like a thousand people dying a day is normal. Mm. I think we can be a lot stronger on this. It's interesting. Um, I think everyone has mentioned that uh, Keir Starmer's approach has not been quite as uh, as they like, but have also uh, said that obviously it's a difficult time to start as leader of the opposition. It's a difficult time to oppose. How permanent do we think that the impact of his performance during this period and the impact of coronavirus overall is going to play on the future of the Labour Party in terms of electoral politics. Are people in the future going to point back to uh, incidents when Keir Starmer was across the dispatch box from Boris Johnson during the pandemic? Or are these moments only really uh, keeping our attention at the moment because of the situation that we're in. George, if you could start. I don't think there's going to be any moments from here on out that 
future, you know, Labour Party activists are going to look back on and say, oh, yes, that's the moment. That's what we should strive for. I think, as I said, the only thing which Keir did really well was calling for the circuit breaker lockdown and being quite good on that. And equally, after a lot of pushing and shoving, deciding that he would actually be quite vocal on school free meals, like his Prime Minister's question time that week, where he produced the um, pictures and figures, was actually quite effective. It really achieved a lot of cut through. And I think moments like that will be looked back on as potentially something that um, you know other leaders or other types of politicians might want to emulate. Although I think he also that tactic's used quite a lot in the U.S. Senate already. So maybe the case he nicked it from there. But I don't think that they're going to look back, say, a session of Prime Minister's Question Time from February and try and pick out anything from it other than just kind of what pitfalls Keir had fallen under because rather than looking back at it and thinking it was great, I think people are going to look back at this time and thinking it was a bit of a missed opportunity. Mm. Armin, what do you think? Do you think that uh, what Kisam has been doing during this particular moment is going to cast a shadow over the rest of his leadership or do you think it's not going to be uh, referred back to as much in the future? I think that depends. Um, well, from what I've seen, the, the economic, because of course we had one of the, the 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 one of the biggest economic crash in relations to the crisis, it was one of the worst in Europe, um, and we're probably going to be in that period. I don't know whether uh, I'm not an economist. I don't know whether this is going to be long, but say we're in a recession for the next few years, or say we're in lower economic in a lower economic situation than other nations or we're in a tough economic situation in terms of unemployment and, and all that kind of stuff. And that might, that might bite back and people would look at the COVID scenario as much as how people look back at the banking crisis. Mm. And the greatest trick the conservatives ever pulled was making the world believe that to blame for a world banking crisis. Mm. Um, and so when a time comes in 2024 and say we're in a bad economic situation, what can Labour point to of course, like what can they point to saying we've been doing this for a very long time we've been saying the prime minister should do this that, and the other and say okay well, what's the evidence because at the time of coronavirus at the time of the worst you agree with the government for most of everything and i think a lot of and I, and I see it i thought it was just me and i thought it was just a couple of people on twitter but it's genuinely voters voters are like people for instance from the red wall they don't expect Keir Starmer to be constructive with the government. They expect this Kizama to be very rough with them and saying, why is he, and like, uh, of course, you know, like constantly when you see people and then they're saying, oh, Andy Burney's doing a great job because Andy Burney doesn't take any prisoners. Uh, uh, he ripped the government to shreds rightfully for their actions to Manchester and to the North. And so it goes back into this of course, there is this room. I think Keir Starmer might survive until the next general election. I think that a leadership election or leadership change won't happen. But, but I think people are already looking at Andy Vernon and saying, oh, well, he's doing okay. The exact way they talked about Keir Starmer when Jeremy Corbyn was in power. So I think in terms of 2024, George is right when they said they're not going to look at the specifics, but it's not about specific. It's about the broadness and people will look back at the past year and say, what, this is the worst crisis out of a lot of like the G7 or G8, out of the first world nations, we had one of the worst crises. And what did you do? You pretty much agreed with them on everything. 
Amy, what are your thoughts? To what extent do you think Keir Starmer's performance in this period is going to impact the rest of his leadership? Kind of, um, you know, like what Armin said, they've just kind of sat on the fence throughout a lot of this, which isn't going to do them any favours. It hasn't done them any favours so far and it won't do in the future. I think at times they've tried to present themselves as like the party of the science, you know, we're going to follow the science and that's part of what was kind of behind the circuit breaker. Um, so I think possibly if they kind of play on that and emphasise it a bit, it could strengthen them, but I'm not too sure that that's going to happen. I think, um, so like what Armin was just saying about... Um, you know, the, the fact that voters don't see it, they don't have a desire for this kind of um, collaborative effort between both parties. You know, they expect us to hold the government to account. Mm. You know, that is our purpose as the opposition. So if we're not doing that, you know, why do we deserve people's votes? It's So I, I don't think this is going to be like an amazing period of Labour history that people are going to look back on. I think it's going to be like, okay, we did some things right. But like, you know... Johnson has made it so clear throughout that his strategy is to um, save lives and protect the economy. And he's done neither. You know, we've got like one of the worst death rates and we've also got one of the worst, you know, um, economic kind of crashes that we're having right now. So he hasn't achieved any of his aims. He's failed like massively and we're not pushing that. Voters aren't seeing this come through to them at all. Lauren, what do you think, what impact is this period going to have on the rest of Keir Starmer's leadership? I think it depends. Um, if there's an inquiry like is being pushed for when COVID's all over, it will kind of depend what it concludes, really. Will he be deemed complicit? Will he be deemed to have enabled it? Or will he be seen as someone that did oppose it? Um, you know, if he comes out of it smelling of roses, he'll, he might be all right. If he's done enough, he's done things like he called for an early circuit breaker, for example, which mm. was then vindicated. Um, you know, and he, he can point to helping out with, you know, Rashford's free school meal push, things like that. If we're in a recession still by the time of the next election um, and our generation has lost the most, if Keir's Labour can provide the solutions that are needed, he might be able to redeem himself, but he'll need to show his teeth a little bit more because I don't think anyone will appreciate him going down a softly, softly route. And it, it really... I feel at this point, it all depends on what the Tories do because we know they changed tact to stay in power. So to some extent, what we do is irrelevant. If the Tories, you know, a couple months before the election come out with tax cuts like they might do. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to move on now uh, to discussing the personality of Keir Starmer, something that has been commented on no end. I think Armin mentioned it and Lauren mentioned it. And it, it, it's something that in some ways people seem to be integral uh, to critiquing or to praising his leadership. Lauren, if you could start, what, what do you think about uh, Keir Starmer's uh, personality has either shone through or, or perhaps not come through enough? It's going to be really harsh and just open with what personality, but I, I feel that's a bit mean. Um, so <laughs> in some regards, I, I don't think he's been ruthless enough. In others, he has been. Um, but I don't know kind of the inner workings of Lotto. I can't tell you how many of the decisions coming out of Lotto are his alone and how many are made by the people around him. Um, you know, one thing he's been really ruthless on is rooting out anti-Semitism, as he should be and I wish the last leader had been, but there is much more to do. And, you know, to be fair to him, he said it'd be a priority 
and he's kept his word on that. But when it comes to things like transphobia, Islamophobia, racism against gypsy, Roma and traveller communities, anti-black racism, he has let himself and the party down. Um, especially with transphobia, how can it be right that Rosie Duffield is on Twitter goading trans people? She's doing it with impunity. What kind of message does that send when she's allowed to go after LGBT labour? Um, nothing's done. Because we can be told time and time again that challenges are being done to people that do these sorts of things behind closed doors, all we want. But when an MP is visibly causing harm to a marginalised community, really only a public response and a condemnation of that harm will do. Um, and if he is going to survive as leader, he'll have to be more ruthless because I think a lot of people, whether or not they're his opposition, would have at least have some level of respect for him if he started saying things with his chest rather than being led by public opinion or focus groups. George, what are your thoughts on Keir Starmer's personality? Do you agree with Lawrence that he's lacking a, a certain ruthless edge? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I agree with Lauren when she said what personality, but I think when discussing this, we're, we're talking about the leader which took the last leader of the opposition and chucked him out of his own party, despite the fact it caused utter uproar from um, a lot of the party base, you know, membership and a lot of the MPs. So... Kieran Ruthless is something you can pop together, but is he getting across his personality? I don't think so. Um, I don't think it comes across a lot in his media appearances. I think people tend to see Kier as like not presenting an alternative or something he believes in, which is why we keep getting these weird speeches like last month where it was heralded that we'd see Keir Starmer's vision for Britain and then we got some lofty words, which every sentence felt like it was going to be used as a... Um, you know, press release statement. It, it didn't come off as quite authentic, which whatever criticisms you have of Jeremy Corbyn, you can't say that, you know, whenever he made speeches, he wasn't genuinely speaking from the heart 60% of the time. I think, though, that his personality does come across in environments that suit him well. Um, his Desert Island Discs was genuinely touching when he talked about his mum and how he had to inform the rest of his um, siblings that she died because he got the phone call when she passed away. Um, and when you like you listen to the tracks he picked out and explain the reasons why, you like you really got a sense for him. And mm. I, I felt quite annoyed listening to that, not because it was bad, but because I was like, Where's this Starmer been? I can really understand him a lot and some of his decisions. And it's we don't get this. We don't hear his experiences, we don't hear what he's done because what he's done for a lot of the two thousands was as the QC, wasn't it? Which means mm. it's bound up by red tape and we're not allowed to hear it. So I, I think that's why his personality, you know, is affected. Like, I do think he's ruthless. I just don't think he is good at coming across as a person. Mm. Amy, what are your thoughts? Do you feel that uh, Keir Starmer's personality isn't coming through enough, that perhaps he's not showing enough ruthlessness? What, what do you think? Definitely. Um, I think the ruthlessness is something that is definitely lacking. Um, I think... Obviously, we are getting, you know, some people coming back to the party now that he's leader. Um, so I think with those groups, he is, uh, you know, a, a definite improvement. Um, you know, he's, he's presenting himself as more of a leader figure to, you know, the wider electorate and the swing voters. I think his passion does sometimes come across in PMQs, you know, when he has the right information, he can go in. But... The ordinary voters just they just don't see it at all. You know, like um I'm awful at my dad for doing this. I'm making much PMQs all the time. And he'll just be like, but what? Like, 
he's not strong enough on anything. So it's, it's not getting through. And, I, you know, I think it, it is there sometimes, but when we're seeing nowhere near enough ruthlessness that we need, you know, this is the biggest kind of, the biggest home goals that the Tories are going to do. They're handing us like loads of opportunities here to really nail them. And we're not taking any of them because we don't have, you know, the leadership isn't kind of there on them every single time. I think also there's a real kind of um, fear, I think, of getting dragged into culture wars um, to the to the extent that we're then afraid to comment on the issue at all. You know, we've seen it with Black Lives Matter. We've seen it with protests, with so many different things. We're so afraid of getting caught into these culture wars because we know that the Tories manipulate the voters on this so well. But if we don't stand for this stuff, then we don't stand for anything. You know, it's... It, we we need to be seen as the party that stands up for people. You know, there's that mm. thing where a moral crusader or nothing at all. And if 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 we're not strong enough to stand up for this stuff, then what is a Labour Party essentially? Mm. Mm. Armin, what are your thoughts in terms of Keir Starmer's personality and the way that he presents it, perhaps in the media? Do you think that there isn't enough ruthlessness there, or do you think that he's not, uh, as, as George perhaps alluded to, not getting his full personality through in uh, media appearances to the public? I'll say something. Keir Starmer's a genuinely a nice guy, uh, and, mm-hmm. and I know this because last December, during the general election last year, he was at a fundraising dinner for my local party, and he was the guest of honour, he gave a great speech, and I had a chance to speak with him, and I had to just have a little chat, and he's a genuinely a nice guy. Um, uh, like, um, and I, I did have a selfie with him, I'm, I'm sure somewhere on my phone. But Kirsama is generally a nice guy. But honestly, yeah, I think I agree with George there when some of his personality, I like when he sorts, the Kirsama that talks about Arsenal, for instance, mm. it's, it, it, it's, it's a little bit fun. But um, when we talk about passion, there are some things he would be passionate. And I'm going to make a very controversial statement. The most passionate I saw Keir Starmer was that defund the police comment. That was the, that was the time where I actually saw Keir Starmer actually show some emotion uh, and on something. Because you, you generally see he was, he was disappointed at something. Uh, and I, I agree with Lauren that taking action over anti-Semitism, he has to do it. And he's done it. And speaking to Jewish members, they feel a lot safer with Keir Starmer as a leader, and I commend him for that. But um, yeah, that's that passion still needs to go through. Uh, and I think, of course, being a lawyer, sometimes you just have to, that, that sort of thing of ha- having to hide. But Amy did put it brilliantly when she said, you have to stand for something or stand for nothing. Because generally, you know, even my parents, my mom voted for Keir Starmer. She's a member. She voted for Keir. And my dad, when I talked about the Labour Party politics, he's well endowed with politics, even though he's not a member. And he said he would want to care for the leader. Uh, I, I, I asked him again, like a few days ago, when I was uh, when I was talked into doing this. Both of them said, yeah, he's not doing great, isn't he? Like, what does what is he doing? Uh, what is he standing for? And every time... You know, every time, you know, something happens like this and most kids don't want this, that and the other. Um, Black Lives Matter will get into a lot later. But yeah, I think he, he is not ruthless enough. And, and once again, you know, uh, that constructive op- opposition, opposition, but that will haunt him. Hmm. And I'll go back to that Clement Alley example because I am reading about him. 
he when things was going wrong he he put down a motion of no confidence i'm not asking Keir Starmer to do that but that but that's the ruthlessness we're talking about he went on to become prime minister Tony Blair, you see, like, Blairites will put him in his video as opposition leader every time. You see how ruthless he is. Weak, weak, weak. He became prime minister. Hmm. You know, history don't remember the constructive oppositions. They remember the ones who are ruthless. Hmm. Um, Neil Kinnock, he was more ruthless with his own party sometimes than with, with, with the government, with, the, with Thatcher. He never became prime minister, even though he really should have in 1992. And I'll get back to the point. And even Ed Miliband, you know, sometimes he did well, but there was sort of this thing he played along to the Tories' tune of we've got to cut the deficit and stuff. People won't remember the ones who are who were constructed. They'll remember the ones who who bite through and actually and actually was ruthless and actually say, No, I don't care. You you did badly on this and I'll hold you to account on it because that's my job as leader of the opposition. Hmm. Of course, it's not just Keir Starmer uh, making up the opposition, but it's also the shadow cabinet. So I'd now like to turn to Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet and what we all think about who he has for his shadow cabinet and how he's dealt with his shadow cabinet, perhaps in comparison to some other previous leaders of the Labour Party. George, if you could start. I've got a bit of a controversial thing about the shadow cabinet, which is it's not a perfect team, but it's good. Um, when it was announced, um, I was thrilled because Lisa Nandy got made Shadow Foreign Secretary. Hooray, that's me done um, as an ex-Nandista. But it kind of just struck me as kind of like Keir had tried to ignore what happened for the last five years in the Labour Party and put together a front bench that we might have seen Andy Burnham put together in 2015. Like, um, just to go into specific Shadow Cabinet members, I will honestly explode if I hear one more person say that Anne-Lise Dodds needs to be taken out and reshuffled away because... For God's sake, she's good. She's actually quite good in Parliament. She's a competent media performer. We are just not seeing much breakthrough with her because the entire shadow cabinet we've got now has spent a year trying to go on a charm offensive over Zoom. You can do a lot over Zoom. We're recording a podcast right now. You cannot charm people. It is so hard to forge genuine connections and come across brilliantly when you are literally just speaking to a screen. You can't react in real time. There's a delay. It's just not there. And we've seen the return of people like Ed Miliband, who got a second wind. Um, he's come back after recording podcasts for a few years, and he's doing really well. His parliamentary performances are fiery. And this leads into this point which Stephen Richards made on the Rock and Roll Politics show, which is that politicians get better with time. And with the current front bench, there's time to grow. And history is a really good vindicator of this, because if you look at the polls in the 1990s, if you ask most people to name... Um, you know, Labour politicians beyond Tony Blair and possibly Gordon Brown, you would really see them struggle. And it wasn't because these guys were bad, well, depending on your politics. It was just because of the fact most people don't know the shadow cabinet. Like, we are a really niche group of people in that we know who these political politicos are. Most people do not have a clue. Like, if Joe McDonald went walking around Wakefield and, you know, bought coffee, no one would recognise him at all. The same goes for someone like Nicholas Thomas Simmons, who personally, I think should be reshuffled out because I just, even though I'm an extremely political person, I don't really know what he's been doing much for the last year. Um, so that's, that's my take on the Shadow Cabinet. 
Incidentally, on that point of people not knowing who the Shadow Cabinet are, that reminds me of the uh, spitting image sketch from the 1980s, journeying into the land of the Shadow Cabinet, and they're all sitting in a darkened room, and they don't know who one another are. So I think that <laughs> perhaps you, you do have a point in terms of the uh, reach of the Shadow Cabinet to the, the public, George. Uh, Lauren, what do you think about uh, Keir Starmer's Shadow Cabinet? What do you think of the team that he's put together? Do you think they're an effective Shadow Cabinet? Uh, just to echo, first of all, what George did about Anne-Lise Dodds, um, totally agree, everything he said. And I think it's very hard when you're up against Rishi Sunak, who's trying to profile himself for basically a leadership challenge. Mm. Half of the media treat Sunak like he's in line to be the next James Bond. Um, and, you know, like Brand Rishi is not leaving any room for anyone to cut through against. I don't think it would matter who it was. Um, you know, I think... You look at Starmer's initial cabinet, um, and I actually think it was a pretty fair and balanced one. I think he had tried to accommodate people from various wings of the party. Uh, you know, it's not the same lineup we see now for various reasons. I think Long Bailey Gate was, although I wouldn't have voted for her to be leader, I actually think she was quite good in the brief that she had. I think she was very popular with the unions. I feel like she was probably probably one of the best placed for that role. Um obviously a shame what happened and she was stupid to do what she did. Um, again, I think someone else I'm missing from the front bench is Nadia Whittam because I think her considered response to the Bristol situation shows that people are afraid to be critical when needed. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that Nandy is shadow foreign secretary, obviously. I, I'm going to say I was quite shocked because I thought her strengths... Um, lay mostly in sort of domestic stuff like communities, local government, stuff like that. But she's doing well. Um, and another person I'd give a shout out to, I would say, actually is Wes Streeting. I think he's doing a fantastic job and he's not someone that I really knew much about before now. Um, so he's, you know, he's impressed me. Also to echo the Nick Thomas Simmons uh, issue, I think he either needs to be urgently reshuffled out or at least a really good social media team around him. Um, and he's up against Pretty Patel. She's love her or hate her, I hate her, but she has got a presence. Um, and I, I think David Lammy would have been the best Shadow Home Secretary. Just going to put that out there. Um, what are your thoughts? What do you think of Keir Starmer's team? Do you think that he's built an effective team or are there any particular people that you wish were there or wish weren't there? I agree with Lauren. I think David Ami would be a brilliant uh, shadow home secretary because mm. especially um, Lamy's one of the best speakers in the party when it comes to inequality. Um, and you saw that with his brief injustice. And you can tell that because, and we'll get to it. Uh, I keep saying this throughout the podcast, but because we'll get to it later. But every time Keir Starmer has something to do with black issues, he'll throw out, he'll throw out David Lamy because he's a damn good speaker on it. Um, and he is, uh, yeah, I think Nick Timothy Simmons, he, uh, sometimes Nick Timothy Simmons does well on certain issues. And I, I some, some of his answers is rude, but so many times he just hits the wrong button. And he's trying, trying to compete with Peter Patel saying, oh yeah, this is also, also about not trying to set his own thing forward. I do have to say um, his speech against the, the police and crimes bill was decent um, because it hit on everything that was wrong with the, with it. In terms of Annalise Dodds, once again, I agree. And not only are there people outside 
uh, outside the party who, who are like gushing for uh, for Dissy Rishi, um, you know, and saying, oh, he's great and he's probably will become the next prime minister or future prime minister. But I, I genuinely feel there are people inside the party who even don't like Annalise Dodds because she's a little bit too on the side for shadow chancellor. And I, I do believe there are some people trying to undermine her and trying to get her out, which is disgraceful. And um, because I, because uh, I'll do a little bit of a self promotion. Open Labour had their had their conference, and Annalise Dodds was the opening keynote, and she was excellent in it. And she understood not only the need for huge economic uh, revolution, but also green industrial that comes into it. Ed Miliband, when he's when he's out, he's good, uh, and he and he's probably learnt from them the ghosts of his past and done uh, and has done well. I think with his team, it is hit and miss, um, but uh, I think uh, they're doing decently enough. But the fact is people are right. People don't remember the shadow cabinet, you know, the only political nerds know the shadow cabinet. It, it rests with uh, Keir Starmer, it rests with Angela Rayner and Annalise also a certain perspective, but mainly rests with the leader because you could have a crap cabinet you could have a crap shadow cabinet if your leader's popular and awesome and really really good in a way that doesn't matter um because you have 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 that you have him pulling all or most yeah all the time him pulling all, all the strings so so that's that's the thing about the shadow cabinet I mean, what are your thoughts on the shadow cabinet? So I, I, I think we've got some really good figures in the shadow cabinet. I, you know, I don't think it's absolutely perfect, but I think, you know, there are some kind of good figures in there. And while, you know, certain shadow ministers have been quieter than others, I think on the whole, it is quite strong. Obviously, you know, with regards to Dodds, I, I, think, I think she's great. I think it is really disappointing how she's been treated. And I will kind of agree with Armand that it seems to be some kind of effort to undermine her by some people. Um, but also what I think is kind of really important is that it's not just the shadow secretaries that are, that are doing well. Um, I think it's also, you know, like the wider shadow teams. So like Lauren mentioned, West Street and has been really, really good. Um, and Rosanna as well. I think they're both great and their passion really, really comes through, which is needed um, right now. I, and I, I agree as well that there's a lot of talent that isn't being utilised as much as it should be. So like with Nadia and Clive Lewis, I think, you know, more could be done to kind of incorporate them. I I do agree that, you know, the Shadow Cabinet isn't remembered, but I still think that, you know, it's, it's important that we are seen as, you know, a government in waiting so that we do have, like, you know, a strong cabinet ready to take over if necessary. Thank you for listening to this first part of the debated podcast look back at Keir Starmer's first year as leader of the Labour Party. The second part will be out very soon. In the second part, myself and the panel will discuss transphobia in the Labour Party, Keir Starmer and Black Lives Matter. Drug and policing policy in the Labour Party, has it changed with Keir Starmer's leadership, patriotism in the Labour Party and the so-called flaggate, and many other things as well. I hope you enjoy listening to that episode when it comes out very soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. 
I hope you listen to the next one.